Exodus 20. Together we're looking through the Ten Commandments and trying to just uh, focus for one whole message on each one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, And the goal here is that we would understand them. And the reason why we need to understand them, Scripture tells us that the law is a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. And the scriptures tell us that the law of God reveals God's character to us. So if we don't understand God's commandments, then we can't understand God's character and we won't come to Christ. Um, So this is very, very important that we have a good grip on this and that we grasp the implications of the commands that God has given us. These Ten Commandments stand out among all all of the rest of scripture because this is the only place anywhere in scripture where we see that God himself not only did he dictate as he dictated other laws, not only did he inspire like all of scripture that's been inspired by God, but the Ten Commandments alone represent the two tables of law that God himself with his own finger wrote them. And when he was speaking the Ten Commandments to the people uh, of God, Unlike many other commands where God would tell Moses what the commandments were to be, and then Moses would come and tell the people. Instead, God has Moses step out of the way in in Exodus chapter 20 in the first verse. He tells Moses, uh, basically Moses just kind of steps aside, and God spoke these words to the people. And the first verse, I'm sorry, it's the second verse, but the prologue to the Ten Commandments Um, God says, I am the Lord your God. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And we have to frame these commands. Each one of the commandments, remember that prologue. Reflect back on it. Remember that God is telling the people, um, you're not saving yourselves by these Ten Commandments. I saved you already. God had rescued the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And now that I've rescued you, now that I've saved you, now I'm giving you these commands not as a yoke of bondage. They've, they know what bondage is like. They lived under bondage in the land of Egypt. Now God says to the children of Israel, I'm giving you these commands for freedom, to show you how to live a, a, in, in a free way. Um, all of us like to be free, but hopefully most of us have realized that living free um, is going to require certain things. So do you know that if you want to live a free life, You have to have control of this thing right here called a credit card. Do you know if I'm free with my credit card, I won't have a free life. Isn't that right? In fact, the more free I am with my credit card, the less free I am. Isn't that a paradox? Do you know that's exactly like our Christian life? The more free we are in the way we disobey God's word, the less free we live. The more in bondage we grow. And so part of my prayer, as we look at these Ten Commandments, wherever you're at in your relationship with God, there are some of you that might be sitting here this morning and you are not free from sin. You're still in bondage to sinful habits and sinful desires. And as you hear these commands, my prayer is that your heart will cry out and recognize your need for a Savior, your need for Jesus, and your need for the freedom that only He can bring. But some of you... It may be that you are serving God, but there is bondage in your life. There are things that you are bound by. And the path to freedom is always the path through obedience to God's word. 
We don't find freedom by disobeying God's word. We only find true freedom by living in obedience to the word that God has given us. And so that first commandment, look at verse 3. God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we come to you as the only true God, and we pray that you would help us to understand in, in deeper ways than maybe we ever have how we need to give you our worship, our adoration, all of it, and not to have divided hearts and not to have other gods that our hearts long after, but to worship you and you only with everything in our hearts and lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A very simple command, isn't it? Just a few words long. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, and when you, when you read that, in some, uh, some translations or some ways that this command is put, it kind of sounds like God is saying, um, you shall not put any other gods before me. As if they're allowed to have other gods just as long as those gods aren't like, you know, as high of gods as the one true God. But that isn't at all what it's saying. Uh, What it's saying, in essence, is you shall not have any other gods, period. You shall have no other gods. So that's a very easy command for us to obey, isn't it? Because we live in a country uh, that doesn't have gold and silver and wooden and stone idols anymore, right? Uh, in America, uh, I don't know, I, I've very seldom ever seen an idol, maybe once or twice. Uh, I've been at somebody's house and they had a little shrine, and it's always kind of strange, isn't it? When you see an, an idol in someone's house, you just kind of like, wow, that's kind of weird. Um, because we don't serve idols. And so when we see this, we can say amen. I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't, I don't serve idols. Idols were something a long time ago. Now, there are people in other countries that serve idols, Uh, They serve images of wood or stone that they bow down to and worship to, worship. And uh, and so those people, they need this command. And maybe they needed the command a long time ago, but fortunately this command has fully sunk down into our hearts and lives, and that's about all that I need to say about it. So it's a quick sermon this morning. (laughs) But don't we know that's not true? We realize that, that idols aren't only things that we make with our hands and bow down to and worship. In fact, John Calvin said that the heart, the human heart, is an, is an factory of idols, that we make idols. And that's the essence of our, the fallen nature of humanity is that we must serve something. And in our rebellion, we will not serve the one true God. So by definition, since we're a religious and a spiritual people, we will find something else to worship. But I'm afraid that the great danger is that if we don't look carefully enough at idolatry and what idolatry is, we can be idol worshipers and not even know it. That's a dangerous place to be. Because the scripture tells us that that idol worship is 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 a grave sin. And if we could be unintentionally even in our lives, orienting our lives around the worship of something other than God, that's a dangerous place to be. Uh, If we thought about just a little bit, what, what is an idol? That's the first thing that we need to understand because an idol is not simply something that is made with human hands 
that people physically and literally bow down and worship and, and pray to. It's, it's more than just that. Because in the culture that we live in, many people uh, do not consciously and intentionally worship at all. Acts of worship are not part of their life. In fact, some people come to church on Sunday and don't worship. So uh, that tells us that as people that just the way our culture is and the way our minds work, we have shoved worship to the periphery of our life as far as the way we think about it so we don't think about what worship includes, what worship is about, what it means. Um, So the first thing that an idol is going to involve is sacrifices. So we, we understand that. You read about it in Scripture, but you also... Maybe you understand it from ancient history or Greek history um, when they would make an altar. And why do you make an altar? You make an altar to make sacrifices. You bring a goat, a lamb, a cow, and you come and you slice its neck and you lay it there on the altar and, and it's a sacrifice. It's, it's a thing given to a deity to honor that deity or to bring that deity's pleasure uh, to, to, to placate or appease the god, the idol that you're trying to worship. In the book of Acts, um, at one point, uh, Paul and his missionary partner heal a lame man, and it's in an idol-worshiping community. So when they heal this man, uh, they decide that that he must be a god. Paul and, and, and his his partner must be, a, must be gods. And so they bring out bulls uh, to sacrifice to them. And it's, the scripture says that Paul and his friend were barely able to restrain them because they decided that, that Paul and his friend were, were uh, Greek gods that had come down in the form of men. And they recognized that worship is, uh, is inherently sacrificial. There's going to be some kind of a sacrificial system. Any idol, there's going to be sacrifices that are offered for it. Um, but that's not the only thing. An idol is always given reverence. Um, What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that whenever an idol worship grows up, uh, there there grow up around it practices and taboos that have to do with treating that idol as sacred and as something different than just regular, ordinary items and objects. All right? Um, Do you remember when uh, Paul is in... um, He's in Ephesus, and because of his preaching of the gospel, the people are turning from idol worship. And the silversmiths of the city get together, and they, they in fact, incite a riot. And the reason is because they decide, the, the, the basis for the riot is they say, Paul is speaking out against uh, Diana of the Ephesians, the Ephesian idol The city of Ephesus had one particular idol that was their primary idol that they worshipped. They would worship lots of different idols, but the main idol for the city of Ephesus was was Diana or Artemis, depending on um, which Bible you're reading in. It's just different spellings for the same God, different language transliterations. And they, uh, when they realize that, or they believe that Paul and uh, his company are speaking out words against Diana, they are not going to tolerate it. That's what we would call blasphemy laws. The idea that 
that the word of God or whatever is our God or idol, we won't tolerate it being spoken against. Um, Idols demand obedience. This is something that actually wouldn't really have been part of uh, ancient culture until the Jews. The Jews are the ones that understood that the moral law and the God of the universe that they served were the same, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the moral law was given by God. And so God demanded that obedience. But once that, once that happened, once those two thoughts were brought together, we understand that whatever idol we serve determines our moral compass and behavior. It determines what kind of set of rules that we follow. And idols or God, God's God, is also the thing that determines purpose. So because the idol is the central thing in a person's life, it determines the person's purpose and the way they think about themselves and the way they structure their life. So let's look at each one of these. These are four things. Reverence, purpose, obedience, and sacrifices. And let's look at the things in our life and ask God to help us to see ways that one of two things can be happening. Either one, maybe you aren't an idolater. And I hope you're not. I hope that you're not an idol worshiper, that you have something in your life that you worship instead of God. But the problem is, many times nowadays, idols are things that are actually good in and of themselves. But what the devil's tool is to take something that's supposed to be a good thing and raise it to an ultimate value. So let's, let's take a few examples, all right? Um, one of them can be our job, the work that we do. Uh, God calls us to work. He calls us to, to um, work with our hands, work with our minds, to, to create value. Uh, that's part of what gives us purpose in life. But what can happen is that we can decide to rest, to, to place in our job itself, in our vocation, our ultimate standard of value. So I decide the work that I do is what gives me value. And then I determine that I'm going to structure all of my life around that work. What are some dangerous things? Well, one of them is that we can decide to compromise in our beliefs and our morals because we need to work. So we, we, um, we justify it like this. Well, I have to work. God wants me to work. So therefore, even though I know that this would be wrong, I have to work, and my work says that I must do this, so therefore it must be okay. Do you see what's actually happening? What's happening is that we're drawing our moral compass from our work, and we might say that we're making God our ultimate value and our ultimate uh, allegiance, but in essence, we're deciding that our, our job and the rules and the moral system that our job imposes on us trumps whatever morals God wants to wants us to live our lives according to. Children. If you have kids, you realize very quickly how easy it is to make kids the center of your universe. The thing that you build your purpose and your meaning around. And um, my kids... 
even at these young ages, like already, I just, my heart is so wrapped up in who they are and what they're becoming and what they mean to me that they bring me joy and happiness and fulfillment. But here's where the danger lies, is as my children grow older, if I make them my idol, what I do is then I decide that whatever Jaron wants, whatever Julia wants, they will get. Whether it's something that honors God or not, whether it's something that's even good for them or not. Because what I'll do is I'll set them up as my ultimate value system. And then, and then my life kind of flows out of that truth. All of us probably know people like this. All of us maybe that have children have been tempted in this area. To take something that God has given us as a good and to make it our ultimate good. These things that we offer sacrifices to. These things that orient our priorities and our purpose. Children, work, the approval of people. And I've recognized that in my own life, this can become an idol for me. I've mentioned it briefly a couple of weeks ago. I, I mentioned to you all how easy it would be for me to say from the pulpit. Without intending to, I can blunt the edges of the truth of God's word. And I tell myself that I'm doing it because I want to get a hearing. I don't want you all to turn me off. There's nothing more discouraging than being a preacher and realizing people just flip the switch. And from there on, they don't hear anything you're saying because you've offended them or because you've angered them. Or uh, even because they just felt like that whatever you had to say just didn't have any bearing in their life. But what I've recognized in myself is, if I were to do that, if I were to, um, to just um, cut the corner, so to speak, about truth and what God's word really has to say to, to us, what I'm actually saying is that your approval of me as a preacher is more important to me than my faithfulness to God's word. And if I'm doing that, I'm making your approval my idol. Let's take another one. Before we're done with the Ten Commandments, we'll come to some commands that God has to say about sexual ethics and about the way we behave, uh, about what's on off-limits and what's not when it comes to our, our lives of sexual intimacy. And um, we live in a world that says those rules are baloney. Or just says those rules are unrealistic. They, they, don't, they don't make any sense. No one can live that way. But I want you to understand something very clearly. When you decide to view pornography to step outside of the boundaries of marriage and enjoy intimacy, or to enjoy intimacy without the commitment and covenant of marriage, let me put to you very clearly what you're doing. What you're doing is you're saying, my sexual satisfaction is more important to me than my obedience to God's word. Can I put it any clearer than that? Do you see what you're doing? What you're doing is you're saying, my sexual satisfaction is my idol. That's what's most important to me. Materialism, money. We all have to have money. 
We can't live without money. Whenever I read about the poverty-stricken places on the planet, when we talk about people that live on less than a dollar a day, I want you to understand something clearly. I feel sympathy and, and sorrow for those kind of people. But recognize that they live in a different culture. Do we all understand that it's basically impossible to live on $1 a day in America? Could you survive on a dollar a day? Not without handouts, right? People would have to give you something. So if somebody's living in a culture where they live on $1 a day, it's a different world, right? And money probably has very little place in their life. And there's times where I think, man, wouldn't that be nice? Can you imagine living somewhere where you grow your own food, you own your own house, you have no property taxes, you might have a little bit of tax in some way, maybe an income tax or something, but you live and you just have a dollar a day. And, that's, and it, maybe you are hungry sometimes, but you don't have worries, you don't have anxiety. Do you understand what I'm saying? There, there would be some benefit to that. Now, it's easy to look on it and say, wow, that'd be nice, but it'd be a whole different story to live in it, right? But understand this. We live in a culture where money is important. It's an important part of our lives. But what's very easy for us to do is to make money our ultimate goal and then orient our lives around money. And that takes the shape of financial security, physical comfort, all of these things that money can buy us. Uh, I passed a sign on the, on the way out to, to uh, South Dakota. It said something like, money can't buy happiness, but it can buy you whatever brand of wine they were trying to sell. And they said, well, it's pretty much the same thing. That's the way our, our world thinks, doesn't it? That money can buy me whatever I want, whatever I need. Maybe money can't buy love, but who wants to marry some broke loser, right? So I need money if I'm going to get ahead in life. But what can happen is that I become covetous and greedy and self-centered. And it all boils down to me deciding that money is more important to me than God. But I think beyond money, beyond children, beyond even the approval of people, all of these things flow out of a central root. And it's this, it's that what America has chosen to embrace as our God, our national idol, is the self. It's me. At the end of the day, it's not really just about my money or it's not really just about my children. It's not really about my uh, materialism. It's not really about my job because when it all boils down to it, At the end of the day, my life centers around me. Let me give you just a few examples. And I want to be very careful here because this, there's a possibility that some of us would hear this and you would say, Martin, I hope you're not preaching at me. And I'm not. None of this, I didn't choose these examples to, but let me give you some examples. When scripture gives us God's requirements for, for our sexual ethics, and the way that we behave in intimacy, and the way marriage, how that's important. Our world has decided that marriage is very important. That's true. But what is more important is your own personal fulfillment. And it's more important that you live a fulfilled life than even that you have a faithful marriage. So how often have you heard somebody say that they went through this divorce or this thing, And they don't point to unfaithfulness or what they point to is 
I just, I'm much better off. I was so unhappy in this relationship. Are you, are, are you with me? Do you follow me? I was so unhappy, I couldn't hardly handle it. Now, what are we saying when we say that? If, if we recognized what God's word has taught us about what he has to say about marriage and its importance, what we're actually saying is that my own personal happiness is more important to me than my obedience to God's word. Do you understand what I'm saying? You following me? What we're saying is it's more important to me that I be happy than that I be faithful to the promises that I've made. Let's take another example. This is kind of preaching to the choir when I'm preaching to you all a faithful crowd on a, on a Sunday morning when there's snow on the ground outside and there's cold weather. But I know, and we've talked about, the temptation to not be faithful to worship. I'm not talking about when you're sick or something unforeseen has come up or there's extenuating circumstances. I know this happens sometimes, but let me, let me give you an example of, of what my fear is, what the danger is. When I decide that worship in God's house does not fit in my schedule, the danger is that what I'm saying is that my schedule is more important to me than the worship of God. So in essence, I'm worshiping my schedule instead of worshiping God. Do you see what I'm saying? Because what I've decided is at the end of the day, it's more important that I have my rest and my beauty sleep and my time to relax and chill than it is for me to honor God. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you, do you, are you following me? Now, all of us would understand that's what we were saying if there was an announcement made and one of you that's here this morning and you're not married, um, you have found the love of your life and you all are planning the wedding and the wedding's going to be in two months. And we put the announcement on the back bulletin and we say in two months, they're going to be getting married and we're all excited, we're all planning. And when the wedding day comes, one of you here that's a very good friend of the person that's getting married, you don't show up at the wedding. And uh, later on, you see the happy bride and groom and you apologize to them for not showing up at their wedding by saying... So I'm so sorry I didn't make it to your wedding, but I was really tired, and so I took a nap. Okay? What would that make you feel if you were the bride or groom, and that was the excuse given? Someone said, you know, I really wanted to go to your wedding, but I was just tired, and I took a nap. Would that make you feel like your wedding was a very important event? Like, wow, they must really think I'm an awesome friend. That they would, honestly, if, if you don't show up for because you took a nap, probably just don't give any excuse at all. Just say, I wasn't able to come. But do you understand how easy it is for us to do that same exact thing for God? To say to God, well, I want to give you more of my time, but I need my sleep. I need my whatever it might be, okay? I'm not saying this to, I'm not saying it to, to, um, to be uh, uh, critical at all. I'm saying it to be faithful. Do you see how what we're doing, if we're not careful, is we're taking... The God that we say we serve, the maker of the universe, the creator of stars, the one who's redeemed us and saved us, and telling God, I'm sorry, but you're very important to me. But there are a few things that are a little bit more important than you are, and so those things have to come first. It's not how it works. When we're doing that, 
what we're doing is we're telling God, my personal comfort is more important to me than my worship of you. So what that means is I worship my physical comfort, right? I bow at the altar of me, of what makes me happy, of what makes me feel good, of what makes me feel fulfilled, and uh, what I, I want to feel good about my life. That's what's most important. And if God fits in that plan of making me feel good, yay, I'm here. I'm all in, man. I'm going to be so into worshiping God because he's what makes me feel good. But if he gets in the way of me feeling good, then I'm sorry, I come first. Do you realize that that's how most of us in America live? God is about making us feel good. It's about how to fit God into our life in a way that doesn't cramp our style, that doesn't limit our options when it comes to exploring our potential. So God is a great, he's a trinket to have. He's a little gadget or gizmo to keep in my pocket. And it's so good to have him with me when I really need him. But if you're expecting me to reorient my entire life around my worship of God, preacher, you have another thing coming. Because at the end of the day, God is not the sovereign of the universe whom I serve. God is my pet. My comfort is my idol. Recognize that Scripture doesn't know anything about a worship of God that is not covenanted and committed, that makes promises that God can depend on. Where we say, God, because you're the center of my universe, because you are the the sun that my world revolves around, therefore, I have done these things in order to make sure you stay in the center. Now, I'm going to get really personal now about some things that you need to do, all right? I was just talking to my wife earlier this week about giving. And uh, in our family, in our little household, we attach a particular percentage of our income to how much we give to the church, all right? So as pastor and pastor's wife, out of our income, every every bit of income we have as, as much as possible unless we get some... $5 gift and forget or whatever. We really try to be conscientious about making sure that there's a percentage that always goes to God. Why do we do that? Well, because if God is truly the center, if he's the one I serve, if he's the one I'm making sacrifices to, the one that gives me purpose, if I, I, I want you to listen to me clearly. If I don't attach a percentage to it, the danger is that I just really don't give God much at all. Are you, are you following me? I think that it's healthy for you to look at your life and look at your checkbook and say, and I'm not saying this, I, I haven't signed any paperwork. I don't even know what you all give. I don't know individual numbers at all. So this is not remotely aimed at any person. But I think it would be healthy for you to look at your life, look at your checkbook, and recognize, okay, God is worth 3% of my income. God is worth 5%. Now, I know there are times in in our lives where where we're extremely strapped financially, and that's a difficult, for us, in our family, the number's always been 10%. I've never had a time in my life when I didn't do that. But what I'm telling you is you need to look hard at your life because what you may be telling God is you're worth 1% of everything that I get. I think that's plenty. 2%, 3%. If, if you don't do that, the danger is that there are other things in your life 
Do you know if you spent as much on God as you spent on your personal appearance? You might not look like you looked this morning. If you spent as much on on your uh, car, do you see what I'm saying? Are, Are you following me? I'm not saying this to meddle. I'm saying this, let's be realistic. Let's look at ourselves and say, what do my priorities say about me? If God is truly the one that you serve, you need to look at your week, look at your time, and look at what kind of time you're giving God. Because what some of us are saying to God is, you're worth a little bit. I'm not willing to really go out of my way for you, but I'll give you this. This little slice of time is yours. And beyond that, I'm sorry. This isn't just about church. This is about your personal devotions. This is about the time you're spending with God. Let me tell you something. I want you to hear me clearly. If you're not doing this, the chances are you are bowing at the altars of other gods. You're an idolater and you don't even realize it. There are idols in your life. You may feel like Jesus is the center of your world and God is the one that you serve, but really, anyone else looking at your life would say, the truth is, I can tell you what you serve. And what you serve is your own personal comfort. You serve your future financial security. You serve all these other things that are, they're good things as long as they're oriented towards your worship of God. Do you know that the way God has designed us is that we put God in the center and everything else lines up in a way that honors Him and brings us fulfillment. But if we put our personal fulfillment in the center and I'm living for my personal fulfillment, we're taking something that was never meant to be in the center. It was meant to serve the sovereign glory of God. And when you're taking your own comfort in your life, your financial security, the material blessings that you have, the children that God has blessed you with, and you make them the thing that your world revolves around, the work and occupation that you have, the approval of the people around you, what you're doing is your life will never work well that way because there's no real reason or purpose. But instead, if you put the sovereign glory of God in the center, my work makes sense. Because now my work is oriented towards providing for my needs so that I might glorify and honor God. It doesn't glorify God when you're not taking care of yourself, your family, and the church of God. It doesn't glorify God when you're lazy. But all of us here have the privilege of work. And if you have that privilege, it doesn't exist for itself. It exists to glorify and honor God. Your personal comfort is a blessing, a blessing that God has bestowed upon you. It is not meant to exist for its own sake. And when you try to orient everything towards your own personal comfort, you know what I found about that? Is that the people that do that the best live the most miserable lives of all. Because they're trying to live for their own comfort and they won't do anything that disturbs that comfort, even if the long-term payoffs are so much better. And the final destination of those kind of people is summed up in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Remember that parable that Jesus gave? Lazarus lays a poor man, a beggar, at the gates of the house of of the rich man. The rich man who's never even named. 
and the rich man fares sumptuously every day. In other words, he has everything his heart could desire. And the, the poor man, Lazarus, lays at the gates. He begs and the dogs come and lick his sores. You want to talk about a miserable life. But scripture says that when he dies, he's taken into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man goes to hell. And the rich man cries out in torments. The man who'd lived a life in perfect comfort and ease is now in utter torment. And the one who lived a life oriented towards pleasing God and honoring Him now lives, a, lives an eternity of comfort and tranquility in the arms of the Savior. And Jesus gives this comment from the lips of Abraham in the story when He says, Rich man, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus evil things. Now... You are tormented and he is comforted. Don't let that be said of your life. That you built your life around your own personal comfort and at the end of the day you found that you had lost not only your own personal comfort but your own eternal soul. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What shall it profit a man if he would gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And God calls us not just to... uh, not just to try to be less idolatrous, but to dethrone the idols of our lives. Do you know what that will mean for some of us? What it will mean for some of us is getting up earlier in the morning so that we can spend time with God. It will mean rolling out of bed when you would rather not because you know that if you don't do that, you won't find time for God. For some of you, it will mean staying up later than you would like to, to spend time with God. Maybe it will mean doing both. For all of you, It should mean occasional times, weekly, monthly, seasonally, regularly, where you deny yourself and you go hungry so that you draw near to God. It amazes me that we're in a culture now that has discovered, rediscovered the benefits of fasting, of denying themselves food, not so they could draw near to God, not so that they could hone their their own spiritual sensitivity to recognize their need for God, but so that they can worship at the idol of their own bodies so that they can, so that their, their physique can look like, am I saying there's anything wrong with being healthy or no, there's not anything wrong with that. In fact, the scripture tells us that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it is a, it's a God honoring thing to treat our body with, with the kind of respect that a a creation of our sovereign God deserves. But I don't think many of us would be able to argue with the fact that our culture has gone so far beyond that. And we have decided that this temple of the Holy Spirit is not the temple of the Holy Spirit anymore. It's the altar of the ego. This body, I'm willing to pour untold amounts of money and experience untold amounts of discomfort so that I can hone this physique to look like the God or goddess that I am. That is so against Scripture, and it's turning what God has... It's turning the the creature and worshiping it like it's the Creator. We have got to, together, recognize the danger of idols in our lives... And then turn from those idols. Now some of us, I hope right now you're wondering, how can I do this? Because Brother Martin, I recognize in my life that I have an idol problem. But you said earlier that 
the heart, the human heart, is a factory of idols. And what I've found for many people is they dethrone one idol only to set up another one. Have you noticed this with people? That they'll find one thing that they recognize is out of proportion in their life, they're out of balance, and so they take that down, and then they set something else up. But that isn't what God's Word tells us to do. Paul says this, he says, You have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. The only way that you can ever be free of your bondage to idolatry is to fill your life with the worship of God. That's why I gave you markers about your time, about your money, about your priorities. Because when you look at those things and you say, my life isn't about worshiping God. My life is about worshiping me. My life is about filling my life with what I like. And I don't like to spend time in quietness and meditation. I don't like to spend time in this word. I don't like to deny myself financially in comfort, in food, in order for my greater spiritual good. But if you will turn to the living God, if you will cry out to God, if you will say, God, deliver me from these idols. Deliver me from the idols of men's applause, the idols of of financial security and stability, the idols, all good things, but they're only good things when they all serve the living and true God. When everything that right now in your life is an idol becomes instead a worshiper of God. So it, in essence, a person could look at your life and every area of your life, they recognize that it bows to the one true God. That they see in your life that you're not all about your own comfort. You recognize that you accept comfort as a gift, but you're willing to deny yourself, not for your own pleasure and your own uh, own, um, goodness, but so that God may be praised. You're willing to deny yourself, maybe some, some little perks that you could afford so that you may give more to God. It's not about just propping up the church. This has nothing to do with that. At a certain point, beyond the fact that I I believe every person should do their best to support their local church, give extra to other places. Find people deserving causes in mission fields and and ministries, other places. I don't care, but what I do care is that you find ways to make your budget reflect the fact that it worships and honors God. And when we do that, what we find is... Our life takes on meaning and purpose. Do you know that some of us struggle with issues that would be gone if we would only turn to God? Do I mean that God just fixes everything in your life? No, no. You all know that my wife and I live every day with her rheumatoid arthritis, and I know that it's a a blessing in disguise from God who knows what I need best. And He knows that if what would be best for me is for him to remove that, it would be gone tomorrow. But I accept it from him. But what I do know is that when we struggle with constant impatience and frustration with everybody around us, when we struggle with being kind and loving towards the people that we really care about, when we struggle with anger and frustration and it flares up at the slightest provocation, when we struggle with a crippling kind of anxiety... I am not just saying, well, if you'll just do what I'm saying, it'll just all go. But what I am saying is this, that God has given us promises in his word, but those promises rest on our obedience. 
And you cannot live a life in disobedience to what God has commanded and expect your life to work out. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory. The God who's able to make all of our idols now bow down before his feet. God can help you right now and right here to look to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, the one who for the joy that was set before him, Jesus modeled every one of these things. Jesus was one who stayed free of the bondage of materialism and and, and money. And when people came to him and said, Master, I want to go see the house you live in, he said, uh, foxes have holes and and, uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus saying? He was free of all the material concerns. And I believe, had Jesus had the nicest house you could live in, He would have held it with an open hand before his father, knowing that it was a gift from God and not a thing to be worshipped. Jesus was one who was willing to deny himself sleep and food and rest and comfort. You know why? For your salvation, so that you could know God. Jesus was one who was willing to to set aside his his own place and authority and take the humble path of, of eventual crucifixion on a Roman cross, so that you and I could be saved. And then he calls us to follow in his footsteps, to set aside the weights of sin and distraction and idolatry so that we might serve the living and true God. And the beautiful thing is that when we do, just like Jesus' life pointed others to the Father, our lives can point people to Jesus. Everything about our life. Not just the words that we say, but the attitudes of our heart and everything in our priorities just becomes arrows that point back to God. May God help us to be a church full of people just like that.